Good morning, John Safari. It's been a great morning of worship already. So excited about 11.30, excited to see what God's gonna do and has done in this service. Uh, you may not know this, but today is considered by many in our country Sanctity of Life Sunday. And while that is often applied to issues of pro-life, it really applies to this entire series we're in called Being Human, looking at the sanctity of every human life, what it means to be created in God's image, and how that works itself out into a number of different issues in our culture today. And today we're going to look at that, particularly in the issue of being male and female. But before I jump in, I want to ask you this question. What goes cluck, 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 boom? Anybody know? That's a chicken stepping on a landmine. Yes, that is what that is. And I feel this morning a little bit like a chicken who's trying to avoid some landmines because this whole issue of gender has thousands of landmines and thousands of questions. Historically, when we think about questions of gender, those have largely surfaced on questions around men and women and how the two genders relate to one another and some of the difficulties of relating to one another. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But in our day and age, the more pressing issue has to do with issues like transgender and how do you handle that issue. Last year, I read this book by a guy named Carl Truman. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It was a very helpful book. It was very technical. But he talked about how about 100 years ago, if you had heard the phrase, I am a man trapped in a woman's body, 100 years ago, you would have probably thought your body is fine, something is wrong with your mind. In our day and time, in our cultural moment, more often people would think, actually, your mind is fine, it's your body that needs to change. And whether you agree with that or not, whether you think that's a good thing or not, I want to recognize just how different that is from conversations that have happened in the last thousand years around this issue. And in our day and time, we're seeing this accelerated clip of issues related to transgenderism and how it bears itself out in society. In fact, I'll just give you a couple of flashpoints we've seen over the last 10 or so years. Here's a few. I'll show you some pictures. Back in 2011, a guy by the name of Sam Killerman came up with what is called the genderbred man. I don't know if you've heard of this, uh, but this was a teaching tool used in a lot of different schools around the U.S. Um, to talk about the dichotomy between the way you feel and your body. In 2015, Bruce Jenner uh, decided that he was going to identify as Caitlyn Jenner, won the Woman of the Year in several different publications in that year. And that, that was really the issue that made this more front and center for most of us in the last few years. In 2017, National Geographic published uh, a magazine that had a spectrum of genders and the many different gender ideologies that were present today. In 2019, the World Health Organization declared transgender as no longer being a disorder. And in that, they were really just saying what had been the practice of, of many for years prior to 2019. Last year, 2022, you might remember that Leah Thomas was winning as a swimmer at, uh, in Pennsylvania. Of course, 
that was not her biological name, but she took on that identity as Leah Thomas, and that caused a whole lot of controversy. And, and these and many others have revealed a lot of things about our culture and its view towards gender, sex, and identity. Here's, here's two issues that we would say our culture is saying through each of these things. Number one, our culture has shifted the definition of gender from biology to psychology or sociology. So gender is no longer simply a matter of the biology you were born with, but it has more to do with your mind and the culture in which you find yourself. And number two, they would say that human identity is self-determined, limitless, and fluid. In other words, when it comes to your identity, you choose it, it has no boundaries, and it can change, it's fluid. Now, whether you agree with those two conclusions or not, that is often what is stated implicitly and explicitly in our world today. And we have questions about that. Not just, is that true, but even practical questions like, if someone wants me to refer to them by preferred pronouns, but I don't think that they are of that biology, should I do that? Or what if my boss compels me to put pronouns on my LinkedIn page, but I don't want to do that? Should I do that? Or you might say, honestly, what's the big deal if we use pronouns and why does that even matter? And we have thousands and thousands of whatabouts and nuances and questions and and there's no way I can get to all those. I, I do want to say that I want to recognize the sensitivity and nuance of this really, really important topic. For a lot of people, this is a confusing issue. You have all these questions about how do I handle this? What do I do when they do this? How about when she says this or when they or do I, how do I, all these questions we have and it's, it's confusing. How do I navigate this cultural moment? I also recognize that for a lot of you, this is a very painful topic. This isn't just some idea, but this is your friend. This is your family member. This is your child. This is your coworker. This is your life. And we have to admit that the suicide rates and suicidal ideation is much higher amongst those who are experiencing what they would call some kind of gender dysphoria. So we want to have hearts to hear and eyes to see what God has to say about this topic. And that's been my prayer all week, that I would convey to you the truth of God's word, but do it in a loving way. I think with an issue like this, you have two different ends of the spectrum, right? There's some people that see the cultural moment we're in and the political implications of that. And, and what you want to hear me say is a lot of, a lot of go get them, preacher, right? Like, yes, talk about it. I mean, against the woke, liberal mob, this like that's what you want. And this is red meat for a preacher. I also think there's a lot of you on the other side that vehemently disagree with what we're gonna talk about today. And, and I'm really talking to people in the middle. To people that are going, what does God have to say about this? And how do I handle all of these issues that I have never really thought through, but are now... I'm, but now I'm forced to think through. We're gonna to look today at what the Bible says in Genesis 1. We've looked at this text a couple different times. This whole series is us really talking about biblical theology, putting verses together, and coming up with these distilled ideas. 
And this is the big idea, I think, when it comes to gender. You may want to write this down, or if you're taking notes and you're listening, God. God's gender, or let me say it this way, gender is not a problem to be solved. It's a plan to be celebrated. We often think about gender as some kind of problem and how we deal with this problem. It's really not a problem to be solved. It's a plan to be celebrated. God has a plan for gender, and that plan is good. I want you to look for me in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. We've read this in previous weeks, but I think it bears itself here in the gender conversation. And if you would, would you stand together as I read for you Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female. He created them. And then if you'll just look at verse 31. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Let's pray. Father, as we now look at this word and a controversial topic in our day and time, Lord, we see that you say your design is very good. And so, Lord, I pray that we would celebrate this plan that you've given us. Understand it, wrestle with it, but Lord, celebrate the way you have designed us. And give us a lot of grace as we study your truth. We'll pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys have a seat. Even just thinking about God's creation, I I think we see right at the outset something about God's love. The fact that God does something and says it's good is an indication that he's doing something for our benefit. I think it highlights the love of God. I think there's people here today that are not followers of Jesus. There are people here today who are going to disagree with some of what the Bible says about gender, if not all of what the Bible says about gender. But regardless of where you are in wrestling through these issues, I want you to know that God loves you, that God cares about you, that God wants to work in your life. And God actually loves you more than you love you. And he is good. So what does this good God say about gender? I'm going to look at three questions today. What does this text tell us about God? What's it tell us about us? And what's it tell us about ministry? All those kind of what about questions that we have. Let's start with God. What does this teach us about God? When we look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, what does this teach us about God? Letter A, write this down. God has no biological sex. I bet you've never thought about that before. God is genderless. In other words, God is a spirit. Jesus one time was talking to this woman at the Samaritan well, and they were wrestling through the nature of worship. And and Jesus says to her, God is spirit. And those who worship him, he desires to worship in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. God is not 
limited in the way that humans are limited. God is not just another version of us in heaven. God, it's not like the Wizard of Oz. You know, when they get to the end and, and they pull back the curtain and all the Wizard of Oz is is little, little man that's just like a different version of us. That is not what the Bible says about God. He has no biological sex. But you're asking, now hold on, wait a minute. And this goes to letter B. God has chosen to reveal himself with male terminology. There's no doubt as you read throughout the Bible that God mainly describes himself with male terminology. All theological language is insufficient, meaning that words matter and words mean something, but words can't bear the full weight of describing who God is. That's why the Bible uses metaphor and simile and story and all these things to point to what God is is like. And God has revealed himself in the scriptures using both masculine descriptions and feminine descriptions. Here's a simple chart that highlights just a few of these. For instance, in the Bible, God is certainly called a he. Jesus is referred to as the son of God. Jesus prays to the father. God is called a husband of Israel in Isaiah. But there are also feminine descriptions of God. God is described as a woman in labor. God is described as a nursing mother, a comforting mother. Even in Hosea 13, a mother bear. So if you ever call yourself, I'm a mama bear, that's actually in the Bible. God describes himself that way. And so when we hear that, we think, well, then we need to go out of our way to rob language of gender ideology and just describe God in neutral ways. There's been Bible translations that have tried to kind of take out all the gender references of God. The problem is that God in his good providence's plan has chosen to reveal himself predominantly with male terminology. So if he does that, that's why we describe him as a he, as a him, as the father, as the son, because that's how God has described himself in his word. So we often jump to what about us, but we need to start with God. What does gender teach us about God? And we've talked about that. All right, question number two. What does this teach us about us? What's this teach us about us? First of all, letter A, God has designed us with two genders. Now that might be the most controversial thing I say today. God has designed us with two Genders. Right here in verse 26, we've already read it. God said, let us make mankind in our image. And then he goes down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then, of course, we read in verse 31, this plan, God said, was good. God created us with two genders, and he says that is good. Now, not everyone agrees with that or likes that particularly those who are wrestling through the issues of transgender and other things in our day and age. But God says it's good. And I think in maybe an imperfect way as a parent, we, we experience a similar relationship with our kids at times. As a parent, there are things that you know are good for your kid that your kid may not fully appreciate, but you still have to put these boundaries because you know they're good. For instance, if your child is learning to ride a bicycle and they're almost getting it, but not quite yet. If they say, hey, mom, can I go ride in the street? 
you probably would not let that happen without going to watch them, especially if you're doing so at a time when people are coming home from work and there's a lot of cars, because you love them. You know it's good for them, but they get mad that you have to put those boundaries there. Or maybe you have a teenager and you have to set curfew and you think, look, I, I, I'm not trying to restrict your freedom. Well, actually I am. But the reason I'm doing that is, is because I have your best interest at heart. Now, parents aren't perfect. Parents are sinners. Parents make mistakes. We're not God. But God's plan is good. And God's plan to be celebrated is that he's made two genders, male and female. Now, a lot of people disagree with that. In fact, if I were to ask you this question, how many genders are there in 2023? I wonder what answer you would give me. There's not an exhaustive list anywhere, but the shortest list I found had 72 names on it. And the biggest one had 112 names on it. So we live in a day and time when the spectrum is getting wider and wider and wider. And tragically, people are rebelling against this idea of male and female, even kids who are wrestling through sexual identity. And it's natural for kids to, to do that to some degree. But what's tragic is that people and parents and doctors are giving them puberty blockers and things to go along with that, which will have detrimental effects on them physically and otherwise in the long run. But God's design is that he has made us with two genders, male and female. All right, letter B, men and women equally bear God's image. They equally bear God's image. Notice in verse 26, God said, let us make mankind. The us is plural. What does the plural mean? Some scholars have said, well, the plural is a majestic reference to God, the royal we. We are doing this. And, and maybe that's true. Others have said, no, this is a reference to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe it's probably both. And it's interesting, it says, let us make man in our image. So in the way that all three parts of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally God. God has made both male and female to equally be made in the image of God. So it's not like God said, all right, Adam, I'm gonna make you in my image, but not Eve. No, Eve is as much an image bearer of God than Adam and every other human being since which means that both genders have equal value, dignity, and honor before the Lord. Historically, however, we have to admit that that has not always been practiced in cultures and societies, and usually the burden of that inequality has fallen to women who have sometimes been um, seen as diminutive to men, less than than men, which explains why there's been a, a lot of rise of women who's saying, hey, we wanna be treated the same way that men are treated. One thing I love about Jesus is that he elevated women. Jesus had women in his inner circle. Jesus did ministry with women. Jesus healed women. Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman when others wouldn't. Jesus forgives the woman caught in adultery when others wouldn't. Jesus allows the woman who had been a former prostitute who takes that expensive oil and breaks it over his feet. Jesus allows this to happen when the host probably was embarrassed that she was even there to begin with. Jesus saw to it that the women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. 
Jesus isn't saying that women are more important than men, but Jesus are, is elevating women as equal to men in value and worth and dignity to God. Now, letter C. Christian men and women are given different roles. And this is important because the Bible mainly talks to people who are followers of God, followers of Jesus, particularly in the New Covenant. Now, there are generalities where we'd say, look, there are some ways in which, generally speaking, men are better at this, at this thing than a woman. Generally speaking, a woman is better at this than a man. Like, for instance, giving birth. Women are generally better than men <laughs> at giving birth. You know, sometimes you hear somebody like a couple's having a baby and both he and she, they're like, we are having a baby. I'm like, bro, we are not having a baby. Let me tell you that right now. Like, you're going to figure that out real quick. There's going to come a day. You're going to realize really quickly that we are not having a baby. Now, baby, we are raising a baby, but I can promise you, we ain't having a baby. All right? And all the women said, amen. That's right. So women do some things better than men. Men do some things better than women, generally speaking. But when we look at how God has designed gender, particularly in a couple key areas, God says, I want to paint a picture of who I am through the way you guys interact with one another. Those two particular places are the home and the church. Now, God does not say anything about society-wide that men are better than women. God doesn't say that a woman couldn't be a president of a country or the CEO of a Fortune 100 company. But he is saying, regardless of what your occupation is, when it comes to the home environment, I want the husband to have a leadership role in serving his wife like the church. And I want the Christian wife to have a servant role of supporting and respecting her husband as the leader in that house. Now, this is, gets really controversial because we read verses like Ephesians 5, and we talked about this last year. You can go back on YouTube, whatever, and find our teaching on Ephesians 5. There's that, there's that verse that just, you know, I get it. It causes a lot of women to, uh, you know, just have this kind of react, because it says, it says, wives be subject to your husbands. And the reason that that often has a lot of pushback is one, we don't like the idea of subjecting anything, but we also, we also misinterpret it to say women, therefore subject yourselves to men. It doesn't say women subject yourselves to men. It says wives in the context of a Christian marriage Subject yourselves to your husband, also in the context of a Christian marriage. And when it's done right, it's a beautiful picture of how these two genders come together and teach us something about God. It's true at home, it's true in the church, where God has given, in some ways, roles of men and women in the church. But Christian women and men are to have these different roles. Now, this is where you get a lot of pushback. Hold on, hold on. What about... What about this situation? And that's where I want to add this letter D. Sin will distort God's good design. Last week I was driving. You remember last week there was that morning where we had just a crazy amount of fog? Were you all driving that morning? It was just, it was insane. I think we had like two days in a row. It was like you could barely see 30 feet in front of you. In fact, I heard of a friend of ours who got in a car wreck uh, because of that fog. They couldn't see and fog distorts your image. Fog distorts what you can see. It doesn't change what is there. It distorts your ability to see and to apply what is natural and normal based on the conditions. And 
when the world fell, when Adam and Eve sinned, when sin came into the world, everything changed. And so God's design didn't change, but our desires changed. And we often have desires that are not bent towards God. They're bent towards our own selfish wills. And we rebel against the Lord and we want to do things our own way. And it shows up in every area of life, particularly in the area of gender. It shows up in this whole transgender movement when people say, God, I'm I'm rejecting your design and doing it in a way that feels natural to me. It, It shows up in stereotypes. Sometimes we can project these cultural stereotypes onto men and women. Now, there are differences between men and women, but sometimes we take it to the extreme, like, you know, all guys got to be this super initiator, warrior, hero kind of thing. And, and look, there's a place where some of that is true, but we've also seen people who push that, this kind of alpha male role that's not always the most biblical description of a man. On the other side, we see, you know, all great godly women are, are passive, nurturers, stay-at-home types. And we, we can push that to one extreme, And we gotta be careful about those stereotypes. Like for instance, the woman thing, like some people say, you know, a godly woman would never work outside the home. I'm like, have you ever actually read Proverbs 31? I mean, that lady is amazing, right? She gets up, feeds her family, takes care of her kids. She's making stuff, going down to the market, selling it. She's working all day. She's like chopping firewood. I don't know what she's doing. She's coming home at night. And what's her husband doing? He's like sitting at the gate talking. Like, what's he doing? All I'm saying is we gotta be careful we don't take these cultural stereotypes and treat them like they're always thoroughly biblical. There's probably some truth in all of them. Especially as a parent. Like if you're a guy and you want your son to be this super alpha male, but maybe he's not wired that way. Maybe he has a different bent personality than you. It doesn't mean he's not also still supposed to be a leader, an initiator in the way the Bible calls him to but maybe he's not wired like you. Maybe he doesn't have the same interests as you. Do you love him for who God wants him to be or do you love him for who you want him to be? Stereotypes. Certainly the sin will distort our image and and it leads to sexism. Women seeing themselves better than men, men seeing themselves better than women. There's some religions that practice that. Uh, If you read the Quran, it talks about how women are inferior to men. A lot of other religious practices that teach that. And then I have to talk about this last way that sin distorts, and it's just awful to even have to mention it, but you have to, and that is the area of abuse. And it's not always the case that women are abused at the hands of men, but it's often the case. And what's even more tragic is that a man would take God's name and apply it to the sinful way that he is abusing this woman. So then she's faced with not only the trauma of abuse, but the confusion of the fact that he's doing it sinfully in the name of God. Sin will distort our desires. God's design is good, but sin distorts our desires. And that's where we live in. We don't live in heaven yet. We don't live in the new kingdom yet. We live in a sinful world. And all this leads to all these questions we have. So that's our third question. What does gender teach us of how to do ministry? This is where, whether you're a student, you're a grandparent, 
you're working in the corporate world, anywhere in between. I, I wanna give you both a principle and a warning. A principle and a warning. Because you have a million questions, all of which are nuanced, they need context and experiences, and what do I do about this? And, and I don't know how to answer all those things. I, I do wanna make sure that you know that I have given you a couple of great books that you can read. If you go to our bookstore today, you can see a list of books I've recommended for this whole series. And I think that they will help you. That's not to say I agree with every sentence in every book, but I think they're good resources to help you in these cultural conversations, much better than me. But as we think about what this teaches about ministry, here, here's the principle for all of you, particularly for those of you following Jesus. You need to be grounded in God's truth. You need to be grounded in God's truth. What, what do I mean by that? I mean, you need to have a robust biblical theology of gender. Now, you may not phrase it that way, but when we talk about gender, we often talk about political issues, our perspective, our opinion, our feelings. All those things are important. They all matter, but they are all subordinate to what God says in his word. And if I were to come up to ask you, hey, what does, what does the Bible teach us about gender? Would you know how to answer that question? If not, you need to. Because instead of all the whatabouts, you have to start first with the design and then you apply it in ways that maybe the Bible doesn't always explicitly direct you to. So for instance, like here's a big question. How do I handle someone who wants me to refer to them by preferred pronouns. How do I handle that? I know you're probably thinking, well, maybe if I go back here to the uh, index, there's like preferred pronouns, preferred pronoun. Let me go and save the time. It ain't in there. Now, there are some verses about men not dressing like women and that kind of thing in the Old Testament. But the reality is there's no explicit teaching of what you do with preferred pronouns. So then you have to back it up. Okay, so what do I know about God? What do I know about his design? What do I know about his heart for people? And then how does that translate into questions like preferred pronouns? There are different opinions and I would say relationships matter here. Like for instance, are we talking about your child wanting this to happen? Are we talking about your parent? Are we talking about your boss? Are we talking about like a waiter at a restaurant? We talking about a coworker? What, what relationship are we talking about? I'm not saying that that dictates the full answer, but it's a big part of it. There are some people would say, well, we, we, we need to use the pronouns that they would want us to use. And they would say this in the name of just being hospitable, trying to build bridges. They would say that all names, if you think about it, are culturally appropriated. Like for instance, I have a daughter named Miller, and I love that as a girl's name, but there are also boys named Miller and our culture is deciding, you know, what gender gets to use that name. And right now, both is apparently okay. And so some people say, well, that's the same thing with gender or name. So even if he was born Jim, but he wants to be called Jane, who cares? These are just culturally appropriated names. And I wanna build a bridge to him and where he is. And you might even use a verse like 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said, to the Jews, I become like a Jew. To those without the law, come without the law. I wanna do everything I can to help save as many people as possible. And so you think, I wanna be supportive. I wanna be seen as loving. So I'll, I'll put the pronouns on my LinkedIn. I'll put the pronouns on my social media I'll, 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 because I wanna be loving. Others 
might take a different view and say, actually, I would not do that because I don't want to endorse them in something I know to be untrue. I don't wanna lead them to what I know God says is not who he created them to be. And they might quote Isaiah 25 that says, woe to those who call evil good and those who call good evil. What, what do you do in a situation like that? For me personally, I would tend to err on the side of not using their preferred pronoun. But if I could just be real honest with you, I would try to ignore it as long as possible. You know, it's like, it's like when you go to somebody and you can't remember their name. You're like, hey, bro, what's up, buddy? How you doing, man? You know, that kind of thing. Now, I know that those are like the most gender-charged uh, terms I could have used for this illustration. <laughs> but but I, I'm just saying, like, if it's a waiter at a restaurant, you, you could probably avoid it altogether. I know that's really hard to do if there's somebody you work with every day. It's not as black and white as we would think it to be. Now, I found two responses that I found to be very helpful. And these are gonna sound more formal than the way you would talk. But I wanna give you these as templates for the kinds of things you can say to somebody. And I wanna give you, first of all, what someone might say if, if you say, I can't call you by that pronoun. And then I wanna tell you what someone might say who said, I will call you by that, and here's why. So first of all, cannot. You might say something like this. I truly want to respect you, but I also need to honor my God. I believe that God created people as either male or female, and that gender specificity is part of the created order. I will be as respectful to you as I can, but I'm asking you to also respect my religious beliefs and freedoms. I don't believe that I can refer to you with gender neutral pronouns and be faithful to God. Now that might sound like something you wanna use. You may say, I actually wanna accommodate them temporarily. So you might say something like this. I'm a Christian and I believe that God created people as either male or female. I need to honor God, but I'm willing to honor your wishes in regards to being called whatever it is that they want you to call them because I want to have an ongoing relationship with you and I want to be able to tell you more about the love of God in Jesus Christ. So these are just two examples of, I think, nuanced and winsome ways that we can minister to people grounded in the truth of God's word. Now, maybe a third thing that comes up is, well, what if, what if my work is forcing me to do this? What if my boss says I have to put pronouns on my LinkedIn profile? What if I'm being strongly encouraged by an advocacy group to do that. Again, I think this is something you gotta pray about. You gotta seek wise counsel on. I'll just admit, obviously I don't wrestle with that as a, as a boss here, obviously in a church setting and I pretend to know all the pressures and tensions that you face in the corporate world. I do think, however, that it comes down to, am I gonna please God or am I gonna please man? I know it's easy for me to say up here in the comfort of a stage and room like this, but at the end of the day, I think that we're gonna probably have to pay a price of some kind to stand up for Jesus and God's design, but hopefully do it in the most winsome, loving, honorable, truth-filled way possible. But that all starts with you being grounded in God's truth. Jude 1 says, 
Contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith. All right, that's the, that's the principle. And here's the warning. Here's the warning. We think about all the transgender people, all the people who say things, all the cultural things to navigate. And here's the warning. People are not the enemy. They are the reason for the mission. People are not the enemy. They are the reason for the mission. Here's why I say that. There's a lot of talk today about how the church in an age of compromise needs to stand strong. And a lot of that, I would say, amen, stand strong in the word of God. But what often happens in that conversation is the church takes this antagonistic posture towards the world. Don't let the government do this to you. Don't let your companies do this to you. Don't let these people do this to you. And what happens even in the most well-meaning of people is our hearts often grow antagonistic towards the very people for whom Jesus Christ died on the cross. These people are not the enemy. They're the reason for the mission. Ephesians 6 says that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. I know it feels that way because it's coming through a human vehicle, but it's not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces of darkness, powers and principalities of the air. These people are not our enemy. They are the people for whom Jesus died. They are the people for whom Jesus went to a cross and said, it is finished. They are the people for whom Jesus looked at and said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the reason I say that is because our posture needs to be helping these people find truth, belonging, and purpose in Jesus. Tarek and my wife, uh, was shopping in the Christmas season and she went, she was at a clothing store. And the person that helped her was a transgender person, biologically a male, identifying as a female. And this person helped Terica and did a great job and helped her find what she was looking for and all that kind of stuff. And, and Terica just made this comment. Now, Terica didn't have a gospel conversation with the person. She didn't pray with the person. But she said, it's so interesting, when I got up to the counter, this person said, I've just got to tell you something, talking to my wife. They said, thank you for being so kind to me. And then they said this, I've never had a customer be that nice to me. And I think about the brokenness of people and the hurt that's buried deep beyond all that. And I think about Jesus. Remember that time when you had the woman who was trapped in the sin of sexual sin and, and, and these people parade her before Jesus. The great irony is that the husband was there, the man was caught too, where was he? But they take this woman caught in the act of sexual immorality to Jesus and they ask the question, hey, the, you know, the law says we can stone her, what do you say? And Jesus knelt on the ground he said he started to draw stuff in the ground. Didn't even tell us what it was, but he was just drawing stuff. And I, I wonder if that point, Jesus picked up a stone because he knew what was really happening. This is not about this woman. This is about these self-righteous people who most have done the same exact thing. He says, how about this? 
For those of you who have not done the same thing, go ahead and throw the stone in her. And in this particular instance, they all just kind of flee. And the woman who I'm sure is sitting there probably in tears and shame and embarrassment for what she's done and the life that she's lived, looks up at Jesus. He says, woman, is there anyone left to condemn you? And then he said these powerful words. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. I think Jesus would look at people who are broken sexually and struggling sexually with identity. I think he'd say the same thing. If they could understand his great gospel and forgiveness and peace and redemption, he would say, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And I want us to pray about this. Some of you need to give your life to Jesus today. I pray each and every Sunday that there's at least one person who would give their life to Christ. And I believe that's why you're here today. I believe it's all about this moment right here where you say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from death for me and I wanna have forgiveness. I wanna have redemption. I wanna have a new identity in you. I also believe that we need to pray for the people who are struggling and broken, that they would find the truth, belonging, and purpose that only comes through Christ. So I want us to pray. I don't know what God's leading you to pray in this moment, but I just ask you to get in a posture of prayer, turn off the phone, all just focus on the Lord. I'm gonna set it up and I'm gonna give you just some time to talk to God about whatever you feel led to talk to him about after what you've heard today. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we come to you right now and just ask that you would speak to your people. God, I know there's someone in this church right now who in their heart of hearts is not a follower of yours, but Lord, you wanna save, you wanna redeem, you wanna give a fresh start. And I pray right now that they would pray to ask you to come into their life, to change them, to save them, to redeem them. God, would you forgive them for their sin and give them a new life. A lot of the rest of us that are struggling with issues related to what we talked about today. And I pray that we would have your heart. So God, hear us now as we just spend a little time with you as our Father, hearing from your children. Thank you for Jesus, for the beautiful, beautiful identity that we have in him. God, I pray that we would act on whatever it is that you've called us to do. We pray that in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen.